This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books in Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Tom Boniface Webb, who is the author of Oasis um, from the Modern Music Master Series. So, Tom, thanks for being with me today. Uh, Thank you very much for having me, Rebecca. It's a pleasure to to be here talking to you about Oasis. So... Can you start off by talking a little bit, um, this is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is the sort of the first book in a series of books you're doing on yeah. sort of modern music masters. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about maybe both the series and how this sort of came, this book came to be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think we kind of need to go a little bit further back than that, actually, um, to my first, first book that I wrote uh, back in... Uh, when I first moved to New Zealand in 2015, 2016, it was a book called I Was Brit Popped, um, which was I wrote with uh, a good friend of mine. Her, we read it together sort of across, you know, 12,000 miles between two countries across a Google document, just as a bit of fun. And that was the sort of, that was intended to be the comprehensive A to Z of all things Brit Popped. Um, and in that we included, you know, like a hundred different bands and uh, all the different albums and singles release. Um, just, it was basically just a little bit of fun, two friends to do. Um, it was the type of book that we would have wanted to read ourselves, really. Um, we were the, those kind of musical nerds who were sort of obsessed with, you know, what was the third single released from uh, Sleeper's second album, you know, and what were the B-sides to that type of thing. So we gathered all that information, put it all together in one place uh, and sort of chucked it out there in the world to see if people were interested um, and got quite a good kind of reaction on social media, uh, fitting really well into this kind of, I guess, nostalgia network thing, you know, of all people that were all our age now in the kind of mid to late 30s who were getting into music uh, in their teens in the kind of mid 90s. Um, and realizing that that was a kind of really, really powerful, um, the nostalgia thing was a really powerful emotion that people were experiencing. And that kind of, that book kind of went from there really, and then got picked up by Valley Press, the publishing house in the UK, uh, who put it out. And that sort of took us to an even bigger audience, which was really good. Um, and then I sort of spent two years working out what I was going to do next, um, and I, for, a, for a long time, I worked on a proposal for a book about Manchester, that kind of golden period of, of Manchester music between 1977 and uh, 1997, where you had 
uh, Joy Division, and then later New Order, Happy Mondays, um, Stone Roses, Spiral Carpets, all of those incredible bands. Smiths, obviously, um, sort of brought together in one place. But the more I kind of shopped that around as a proposal, sort of more it felt like this area has been pretty well <laughs> documented o- over the years. You know, there's a lot of stuff you can go to here. Um, so I kind of wanted to strip it back to the essence of what interested me in the kind of whole subject matter to start with. And then I, um, and I'm a huge fan of the 33 and a third series who, uh, published by Bloomsbury, they used to be based in London, now they're based out of New York. Um, and they, in case, in case you don't know, they're just, um, one album is discussed in about 30,000 words by a, a, a series of different writers. And I was kind of really into that idea of these kind of short books all about, uh, a, you know, a very specific um, thing in that instance, it was the album. But I kind of wanted to open that up a little bit and came up with the idea for this series of books, each one just on a different band, centred around the kind of USP, if you like, I guess, is centred around the releases of that uh, band or artist. So the records that they put out, singles and albums that they put out and how they performed in the charts. And it's sort of, it's very UK focused at the moment. Um, I think that's because the artists I've um, studied at the moment uh, have sort of had their most prominent success in the UK. But the, the kind of the way the series lends itself is it can be opened up a, a lot more um, to being both from you know, bands from the States and from all over the world. Um, but the, the focus, the idea being that each one is only 50,000 words long. So it's relatively short, relatively easy to get into, and then just sort of follows a, a potted history of the band's uh, time together releasing music. Um so it, it, Oasis are a really good example. They were they were the first band that I. They were just obviously going to be the first band that I was going to do it with this series, partly because they're the first band that ever really meant anything to me properly. As you know, they were my band. I was into groups before before that. I was hugely into the Beatles and you know bands that my my dad had played me and my parents had played me. I was really into like Queen and and things like that. And when I was quite little but oasis was the first band that came along that meant something to me personally and it felt like they were my thing and that i was experiencing them in the time and in the moment and i think that's kind of that's the stuff that stays with you forever you know that's kind of your music is the stuff that you discover in the now and in the moment and it's like history is being written as we sort of speak it um so it was always going to be them that were the first band that i uh was going to write about uh, and so I just started writing the thing and, and was writing their history uh, from when they first formed. And they formed in this sort of glorious period, as I was saying before, in, in Manchester, right at the end of this 20-year golden period. They were kind of the last of the great Manchester bands. And they took everything that all of the other bands had, had done and put it all into one place. Um, and then their their period of, of releasing records was about 15 years, you know, from 1984 up until about... Uh, 2009 um, when they kind of blew up in this sort of fantastic ball of fire um and and so it kind of felt like that story could be fit quite nicely into into this one fifty thousand word book 
And then in writing it, what I sort of realized I was interested in wasn't just necessarily uh, they did this, then they went there, then they did this, and then they released that. It was also a kind of a bit of a study of key stuff that was going on at the same time as well. You know, I'm a big believer that uh, popular music is informed by the goings on of society and it, it, it comments back upon what is going on at the time and is a comment upon, you know, that kind of whole mirror up to society sort of thing. And Oasis were kind of perfect band for that in the mid 90s. They kind of represented this kind of um, very macho male, um, traditionally sort of male um, cultured thing that is ladism that was quite big in Britain and in the mid 90s. Um, lads playing football and drinking beer and all that kind of stuff. And they, and Oasis kind of represented the ultimate kind of party band, party atmosphere. But that's not to say that was the only side to them. And there was definitely a much more introspective side um, of, of the way, particularly of Noel, the song, the key songwriter, of him being able to release his emotions through these much more thought-provoking numbers as well. Um, so they were kind of that, they were sort of the ultimate perfect rock band in a lot of ways. Um uh, and sort of, and because that because that sort of seemed to work quite well in in this format, fifty thousand words. Here you go. Um, I sort of I put that out into the world, and then very quickly jumped on to do the Blur book, and wrote that one even quicker um, in just a sort of a, a couple of months, I think, or maybe a month or so. Um, and it sort of seemed obvious that Blur would be the second one after Oasis, and then once I'd done the Blur book, it just seemed obvious that I had to do Pulp next as well. Those three bands being the kind of key three triad, if you like, um, trilogy of, of Britpop groups. Um, and I was kind of, the idea was just to use the Britpop thing as, as a launch pad for the series to then eventually move away from that, um, spe- the specificities of that genre onto other different acts as well. And since then, I've sort of been garnering a list of acts and, you know, artists and, and bands. And there's a, there's a long list at the moment. But also opening it up so it's, it can move away from me and become its own kind of franchise as well. Like there's two, the next two books are not written by myself, written by two other writers. Um, I think the first one is going to be about the Verve. Um, great writer called Richard Bowles is writing that one at the moment. And then I've got a, as another writer, really great guy, Steve Nash, Canadian writer who's doing one on the Manic Street Preachers, both of which are due out next year. And then we'll kind of see where we go from there. Um, I think I'm probably going to focus on Suede for the next book, um, for the one myself, and then we'll kind of see where we go. Because, you know, I'm a huge music fan and and, um, there's so many different acts that I'll be interested in, in writing about. We'll just kind of have to see where, um, where it takes us from here on out. And and I am sure that Oasis would be very happy that they come before Blur, <laughs> yeah. um, because they will feel like they actually won. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I think Liam would just expect it. <laughs> uh, and and I do I love Suede. So yeah. any I feel like Suede is very underrated. Uh, you know, there are other yeah. bands that sort of. So I think that they deserve all the. Yeah, they, all the promotion they get. Yeah, they were the trailblazers in a lot of way. They were the first. I mean, Blur were the first of these bands to have a hit, but Suede were the first ones 
to come along and have a huge hit number one album, you know, in, in, with their debut in 1993. It was the first sort of huge album of the 90s. Um, and uh, and as such, they sort of um, then got overtaken by the whole Oasis blur thing. Um, and uh, I think you're right. I think they've sort of, they were a bit underappreciated. But then when they came back with the third album coming up, uh, I thought those first three albums are fantastic, you know, and then to, to survive the loss of your key songwriter and Bernard Butler left and, and come back with arguably a best album. I mean, that's quite, quite a, quite an achievement. So, um, yeah, it's funny when you start writing about these bands, like I didn't consider myself the world's biggest pulp fan, loved them, but then started writing the sort of book and all I was sort of reading about them, doing my research and listening to the music. Suddenly I'm kind of obsessed with this band and I'm, sticking up for them and thinking they're much better than Oasis and Blur, you know? <laughs> Why were they third place? It's just, it's funny how you end up sort of, I guess you have to really, you have to get into the mindset of supporting the act that you're, you know, writing. No, and yes, and one of the things I found interesting that I appreciated was that you, um, right, you, you don't just sort of say throughout the book, here is like Oasis hit number one in August of 1997, right? You list the top 10 yeah. and that helped, that also helped me really um, think about and put it into a larger context and thinking about, Oh, that's the same time that, you know, prodigy was big or, or realizing this band was really that big. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's certain bands that I'm like, Oh my goodness. But yeah. that was, yeah, that was exactly. And I think that's part of, um, what I think is the USP for this book series is putting them in, putting each of the acts in their own, contextualizing them really, putting them in, in their own sort of uh, specific context of the time. Um, I wanted to do that more. You know, ideally I would have wanted to write the whole top 40, you know, of what was going on at the time and, and talk about all the other different groups and stuff. But, you know, obviously there's not really space. And so it kind of made sense to whittle it down to the top 10. Because otherwise, you know, it, it could get a little bit boring. You know, you've just got this kind of box of saying, you know, Live Forever came out in August 94. Here it is. And here are the B-sides. And it's like, well, great. What was at number one when Live Forever was at number 10, you know? And, and, and more importantly, it's like, you know, what was at number three when Oasis and Blur were doing their head-to-head at numbers one and two thing? You know, no one remembers what was at number three that week. Um <laughs> And that's kind of, yeah, that was, that was all, that was a big part of what I wanted to do with the series, um, putting in those top tens and stuff. And I kind of wanted to want to open it. I've been in, I've been, I've got a really good relationship with the UK chart company who I sort of thank hugely because all of the chart information comes directly from them and they're a fantastic company sort of trying to work out something to do with those guys as well, because I think, you know, I don't know about you, but when I was a teenager, I was totally obsessed with the charts. And we in, in England, it was every Sunday night, uh, every Sunday afternoon, you'd tune in for the Top 40 on Radio 1. And that was the only way you could find out, you know, pre-internet, pre, um, you know, anything coming out in the newspapers or anything like that. That was the only way. That's how, what, how the artists found out where they were, you know, in the charts, listening to the charts, you know. Um, Alex James from Blur sort of famously said that he was driving down the M4 when he found out that they had won Country House and got to number one. Um, and and as such, you know, we used to record the charts and stuff, you know, before uh, you, you could get anything from Spotify or, or whatever. Um, and so I was totally obsessed. And then that kind of seemed to disappear for a while once people stopped buying physical copies of things and we moved over to streaming. And then in 2014, the charts, downloads and, and streams all got 
put into the charts as well. And suddenly it's this record of in real time what people are listening to exactly as it happens. And I think that's kind of fascinating for the first time that you look at the charts now and you can have something that's been playing on an advert on TV a few days before. And then suddenly, you know, you can, it's quite good for advertising firms, I guess, because they can judge how many people are watching their adverts because then suddenly the song shoots up the charts again, Um, which it it also means stuff like, you know, every time Ed Sheeran releases a new album, the top 10 (laughs) songs in the charts are just the tracks of that album, you know, it's a little bit boring. Um, but then again, and that's not the first time that's happened. You know, in in the sixties, you know, the, in nineteen sixty four, the Beatles had the top five positions in the charts in in the in America in the Billboard charts. You know, so it's not as if this is the first time that we've had this kind of popularity. But it is the first time that that the a third party, i.e., the record company, has actually been taken out of the equation, and it's happening in real time. What people are actually listening to without kind of the being curated by anybody else, if you like. And that's such a kind of, I think the time is right for there to be a real interest in chart, chart stuff again. I often have no idea what number one is, but, you know, it's, it's good to know that, it, that they're there, I guess. <laughs> well, and it was really interesting to me, too, like looking at those charts, like realizing, like, I liked, like, I listened to Oasis, I liked Oasis, but um, by the time Oasis came out, um, I was done or I was at the tail end of university. Right. Yeah. Um, so my friends who were paying attention, you know, when we were paying attention, to those charts are going to the, and having a good record store really helped too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, and I, and being a big fan of like Brit pop and anything that was for me, anything coming out of Manchester really um, for a long time, like, that was the way to find out what was going on in the UK, right? Like, let, you know, whatever the chart says, like, then I know in the US, we're not going to have to pay an arm and a leg to get that single or to, yeah. right, to get that album. It will come out. But, yeah, 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 true. Yeah, but I also didn't realize just how often Oasis, like, I hate to say, it, like, how often they were on the top of the charts, right? Yeah, it's incredible how successful they were. And that's something I've had to put into context with the other bands, you know, when I'm writing this, um, this series, I went into it kind of open-minded and said, you know, Oasis had eight number one singles and eight number one albums. Okay, so that's you know, and that's not counting how many top tens they had. So that's going to be quite, you know, there's going to be quite a lot of interest for that in this book. But some of the other acts that I'm going to be writing on further down the line are not going to have been as successful as that. And you're going to have like a number thirty-three single, and then all you've got is the top ten. Um, but I think that doesn't necessarily matter um, because. To some band, you've got you've got to put it within context of itself. You know, it, it's um, some bands having a thirty-three single number thirty-three is is a huge, huge achievement for them, just as big as it is for a band like Oasis having a number one single. Um, and so, in the Pulp book, it took fifteen years from Pulp playing their first gig. Um, it was in nineteen eighty-one to them headlining Glastonbury was nineteen ninety-five, um, which was fourteen years later. You know, and in that time they released three records, none of which charted, and numerous singles. Um, and so that was quite. I was a bit concerned writing that book because I was sort of thinking um, it's on the top of my mind as well because I've just finished it and it's it's coming out at the end of next week. Um, and um, I was thinking that how am I going to make that interesting? 
And true enough, it, it only really gets exciting for pulp once they start to release kind of common people and disco 2000 around that time in the mid nineties. But that's not not to say that the music wasn't great. It was just wasn't being listened to in the same way that it was. It wasn't being picked up in the same way. And so then you sort of start to get into areas of how how do bands become popular? And someone like Oasis, it very much seemed like there was nothing contrived about Oasis. That was what was so exciting about them when they came along. It was all just um, chance. You know, it was the, the stars were all aligning in the right way or whatever you want to say about it. And they just happened to come along at the right time. And and people saying, well, if it wasn't them, it would have been someone else. It's like, well, I, I don't think it was because it was just you needed those things. You needed those two brothers. You needed Liam with his kind of unabashed um, confidence and, you know, good looks that when I was, you know, 14 or whatever I was when they came along, I just thought he's just so good looking. I want to be that guy, you know. And he just, he didn't, like I say in the beginning of this book, like Damon was this figure that we all revered as well and all the girls fancied him and all the guys wanted to be him. But it kind of felt like he he carried the weight of the world on his shoulders, whereas Liam just had this kind of, you know, um, sort of relaxed um, arrogance. But it, it wasn't necessarily arrogance because everything that he was saying was true. You know, it was all coming true. He, all he was saying was that, you know, we're the biggest band in the country and then we're the biggest band in the world and it was very difficult to argue against him when everything they were releasing was an absolute stone cold classic that was going to number one you know whether it was the sort of album or the singles or whatever and a lot of the bands um would be crushed under that kind of pressure or would have shied away from it but oasis just very much stuck it out and they just stayed there in the spotlight just batting off all of the you know the detractors all the people that came their way and particularly when it got to the end of the 90s um when they were releasing this uh, standing on the shoulder of giants album um it was clear that something had sort of changed and that was the end of a certain period of their sound and it was much more the kind of i talk about it in the book and summing up as well with the um pulp releasing this is hardcore around the same time um, that it was the come down record, you know, and it was like the party was over, and um, and then and that's and that's and but they just they still managed to face it, you know, fa- face it head on. And Noel always managed to write about it in his songs, as um, fantastic songs, all about that kind of, um, you know, having to deal with the pressure of of being such a huge band and dealing with all the kind of fake people that come your way and. Um, the friends that you have to buy and all that kind of stuff. And um, uh, and that's actually makes them a kind of fascinating band. And there hasn't really been another band before or since like them. And somehow Oasis managed to sound like they'd always been around without actually totally, they were totally fresh, totally new, totally of their time. But always sounded like they'd always been there as well at the same time. The music just kind of seemed to make sense just at the time that it was needed. Um, and I think it will be a difficult thing to copy as well. There doesn't seem to have been anything like it since. Um, a band like the Arctic Monkeys came along in 2005, 2006, and were immediately hugely successful and had these really great pop-friendly tracks. Their first two singles went straight into number one. The first album came out as the quickest-selling debut album for 20 years or whatever it was, 10 years. And... Um, uh, but then they kind of shied away from that kind of public attention. And, that, and although they're releasing really interesting music still, 
it's very um music for themselves stuff that they want would want to um listen to and um for them and their friends rather than staying sticking in the middle of the charts you know which is what oasis always did um which i think is kind of makes them kind of unique in a lot of ways you can see why it was very why they were a very attractive band across the whole world there's, there's something even the people that hated them still kind of knew who they were and st- could still hum along to the tracks even if you didn't you know even if you sort of hated what they stood for you you couldn't deny the fact that the singles were really strong and the songs sort of deserved to be listened to this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real pos you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory shopify pos has everything you need to sell in person Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And one thing that I thought was really interesting that you sort of pointed out was that in this time of um, a, a great deal, not everything, but a great deal of sort of synthesizers and piano Right, that they come in just playing guitars and, and you know drums and going back to that sort of stripped down. Um, yeah, that's rock. Basic. So yeah, yeah, which I think is really. Can you talk? Yeah, talk a little bit about. Yeah, well, it was kind of like I mean that was a reaction to the eighties, I guess, and music kind of evolves over time. If it's um, you know, I could go into this whole working class, middle class thing as well, but I think. In the same way that punk at the end of the 70s was a reaction to how sort of pompous and grandiose um, music had become in the 70s. So, you know, all your Pink Floyds and your Yeses and Emerson Lakes and Palmers and all those types of big, you know, sort of pretentious bands. Punk was all about sort of resetting it and setting it back to zero. But the, the fact it was so nihilistic and so guttural meant that it was only ever going to have a very short shelf life and um uh, and sort of exploded you know if you think of punk in the in the sense of what the sex pistols did then he had like one full year when they were active and then they exploded into nothingness and went about the world which is which is the way it was only ever going to be and then from the ashes of that kind of punk came new wave acts like joy division and they an act like joy division came along at a time when they were still playing this very sort of simple rock and roll guitar, bass and drums. But then the fact that technology was changing at the time and they were in, people were inventing computers and, uh, you know, drum machines and synthesizers and things like that meant that Joy Division's music began to evolve into what we then knew as new order. Then it felt very cutting edge. Um, and that was sort of what happened throughout the 80s. That, in 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 its own sense, led to um, a band being able to be consisted of just one or two people. You know, you had a band like the, the Pet Shop Boys and that whole kind of synth pop thing, which, you know, Pet Shop Boys are fantastic. But it was just one guy programming some keyboards and then another guy singing. So it wasn't particularly that exciting to watch live or anything like that. Um and then that, and then that evolved in itself. Technology then evolved to the point where dance music dominated. And if we're talking about Manchester, then you've got the whole kind of hacienda experience. Um, 
which was sort of the birth of acid house culture, again, all tied up with the drugs and stuff, which don't need to necessarily go into now. But what came out of the other side of that was the idea that it was all, it all gone too far. It was all kind of too much and it all got a bit carried away with itself. And what Oasis did, and, and as I was talking about before, Suede did as well and Blur, is they kind of pressed the reset button on that and just took things back to the basics. You know, in the um, Liam talked about the fact that, you know, dance music never made any sense to him and he never went to the Hacienda because he couldn't understand that type of music. He just liked basic rock and roll music. And you can understand why that is. It was that kind of connection that you had between the band being on stage and the audience being in the audience and then that kind of separation. Um, But what they also did that was interesting is they made the band accessible again as well. So it was kind of like punk in that the band were, were an extension of the audience. You know, they were just your mates on stage or whatever. You felt like you knew them. And as such, you could feel sort of part of it. But they were still rock and roll stars who you could idolise. And there was that kind of element of escapism. And the, particularly the early Oasis stuff, the definitely maybe period, all of those songs are about wanting to escape, wanting to not be where you are. You know, the very first line on it, in, on the whole album is, I live my life in the city, there's no easy way out, you know. Noel was desperate to escape from Manchester. And the only means that he had to do so was through music. And they talk about that a lot, and they always have done, is that the, for the working classes to escape from that kind of impoverished environment, the only way to do that was either to be a footballer or to be a musician. You know, there was nothing else. There's no other way around it. That was it. You work in a factory or you go and, you go and escape through music, and that's what they managed to do. Um, and so there's that kind of really, really exciting idea of pressing reset. What do you do now if you've just got a guitar? What is exciting? What's going to be exciting that you can make play to the audience? And it kind of had to come back to basic songwriting again. Noel sits down and plays Live Forever, just, you know, whatever it is, four or five chords, just this sort of beautiful lilting melody line. It made you focus upon the music and what they were talking about, what they were singing. And, and it meant it was immediately understandable. And that kind of stuff crosses boundaries and crosses borders in the way that a lot of other music can't. A lot of um, music that might have sounded cutting edge in the 80s, synth pop stuff today just sounds ridiculously dated. You know, it's just very much of its time. That's not to say that it's not still brilliant music and it was pioneering at the time, but there's something awe-inspiring about five guys in a band playing guitars, something timeless about that. And definitely maybe in particular just sounds so perfectly of its time, but yet timeless at the same, at the same time, you know, they'd, it's kind of like um, uh, the Converse high top shoe. It's always going to be in fashion, you know. Other things come and go, but guitars are, and Converse are always going to be in fashion, you know. And uh, it is so true. <laughs> With all my ten-year-old, she all she wants to wear are Converse. Go. There you go. See, and it was the same when you were ten, I'm sure. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my closet is full of them too. So I, go. yeah. <laughs> Crosses well, it, 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 I think one thing that's really important and you and you talk about the, i mean this comes throughout but you really um push at this like that these two brothers are really important right so there's these other bands and there's what you know they go on tour with was it the black crows and uh, oh, another yeah, space Hulk. right uh, yeah right yeah. yeah right so you know you talk about this fact that they're not the first like brothers who were in a band together or brothers who hated each other by the time you know they were done with the band but that 
these two together are really important for Oasis to exist the way it does. Yeah. Um, because they each brought their own distinct individuality into the into the middle. Like if you take a band like the Kinks, for example, you've got Ray Davis and Dave Davis. You've got Ray Davis right at the middle. He's the singer, he's the rhythm guitarist, and he's the songwriter. You've got Dave Davis who supports him. And although he's a songwriter in his own right, he didn't necessarily bring that to the Kinks. He brought his guitar playing, which supported the songs, and he brought his his harmony vocals, which supported Ray's vocals in the middle. So you take Dave Davis out of the equation, and it's pretty much still the Kings. Whereas it, with Oasis, uh, and that kind of seems to be the way that a lot of these kind of brothers bands worked. You've got the one in the middle who tended to be the older brother, um, who was the sort of the center of it. And most bands work like that as well. You know, you have the singer and guitarist who also tends to be the songwriter and the band is kind of centered around them. But what was so fascinating about Oasis is you, you needed both of them. Otherwise it didn't, it didn't work in the same way. It didn't, it wasn't the same thing. And um, once, you know, once Noel started to sing and he did a lot more lead vocals, that was fine. But you knew Liam was at the side of the stage waiting to come on and do his thing again because you needed those dynamics of the way that those two worked together. Like Noel was at the side of the stage and his strength was in the songwriting. Great singer, great guitarist, but his strength was his songwriting and his personality came from his songwriting and from his kind of, he did a lot of that kind of during show banter where he talked to the audience and, and, you know, come up with little phrases and things he would say, whereas Liam never really did anything like that. He'd only ever, um, uh, he'd say, you know, little bits here and there and stuff, but it was it was all about his kind of brooding masculinity at the center of it that kind of sat there, that kind of exuded across the stage. And he let that, he, his cleverest trick was never to to speak too much. I mean, now, now he kind of speaks a lot in the press and all that kind of stuff and, and everything. But at the time, during the kind of iconic period and iconic, when he was on stage, you know, he kind of shut up and let the music and his own personality uh, speak for itself. But also the the fact that, that that also comes back to what, what evolved out of the Hacienda. Like I said before, that Liam didn't go to the Hacienda. Um, he preferred to be in the rehearsal rooms with what was Oasis before Noel joined, playing the rock and roll songs on guitars. Noel, on the other hand, very much did go to the Hacienda. And he absolutely... You know, he says that is part of what made him into the songwriter that he then became. And what he took from his experiences at the Hacienda was that kind of uh, joyous, we are oneness, you know, that kind of anthemic, we are together, this is us thing. And he took away the elements uh, out of it that were the kind of synthesized elements, i.e. the drugs and stuff, and turned it in unison with the kind of football terraces, we are the we are the you know the the football team. We are all together on the same side, and put that into what a band could sound like, and that meant that they kind of had these anthems um, that made people feel like they were part of something. He took that, but he needed Liam's personality in order for them to properly complement each other, because I think otherwise it would have sounded contrived. And there's, there was never anything contrived about Oasis, and that was what was most exciting about them, is it kind of, it feels like it could have been done on purpose. And and when they did, I remember when they did sort of first become successful, people thought that just can't be true that Alan McGee just came a, across them in a club like that one night. 
and just sign them after watching them play three songs. It just that can't be true. That just doesn't happen outside of the fantasy of a sixteen-year-old kid, you know, who's just expecting to be um, expecting to be discovered in that way. That's just not how it works. And true enough, it wasn't. But Alan McGee, and and that was what that was the other thing that was fascinating about Oasis is it, often people, you know, the general population take quite a while to catch on to these things. Um, it, and and they Oasis got ignored because they didn't play the game. They didn't. They weren't recording and releasing things on their own labels and all that kind of stuff and, and supporting bands the way they should have been. They were just doing their own thing, and so they were ignored for two years in Manchester before Alan McGee saw them. But it took someone like Alan McGee, who had the kind of nounce to be able to fully understand what made a great recording band, um, to see the promise. And immediately he was hooked, you know. And I'd be interested to know, because it doesn't seem to be shared that often, but every other signing, you know, great signing story that I seem to have come across always seems to be very much more, much more mundane than that, in that they heard the demo, they liked the demo, they went along, saw the band, they weren't sure, so they went back a couple more times to see them, got into conversations with them, did some demos and stuff like that. No, with, with Oasis, it was just that one night, and then... Everything happened after that, you know. The rest is kind of history. They didn't. The band didn't even really have much of a um, a following to talk about. And so, to, in today's standards, uh, for a band to get signed, they need to kind of have. They need to be ready for the world um, to take on the world at, before they're even signed or anything like that. You know, everything needs to be set in place. Whereas, um, I guess people took more of a more of a chance back then. And I sort of talk, that, talk about that in the Blur book as well, because they had that kind of similar sort of story, but, you know, much more the kind of plodding, you know, um, people going to Andy Ross, coming to see them a few times and stuff. Um, and that, that was kind of fascinating. I think you only get bands like that every every once in a while. And, and to sort of mention the Arctic Monkeys again, a sort of similar thing happened to them when they, they released their, they recorded a demo themselves and sort of, and the guy from the local record store uh, so they played on the Sunday night and then the guy from the local record store was fielding calls all day from people calling up and saying, have you got the Arctic Monkeys single? And he'd never even heard of them. And eventually someone from the band called up and said, oh, I'm from the Arctic Monkeys. Can we sell our CD through your shop? And the guy was like, I've had 60 people calling up and asking for your CD. Of course you can, you know? And it's kind of, that's the kind of classic old school way that these things happen. Um I don't know. It's difficult to say. It's all been done before with someone like Oasis, but it's um, surely someone else will come along and, and do something similar. Yeah, and I and I sometimes think that um, not that it's the only reason, but the fact that um, Noel had been a roadie, right, had mm. sort of done that touring, uh, so he sort of knew or saw. Um, what that was like and what it took to be that band that could, you know, sort of play and, and that they didn't care <laughs> that yeah. they weren't playing the game. Right. Like yeah. some of that helps. Well, I think, to... And that's something else I'm going to, because I spoke to a fantastic writer and musician, John Robb, who talks about this idea of the Manchester 50. And I don't know if it was him that named them the Manchester 50 or whether it was Noel, but Noel was a member of this group and the Manchester 50 I know you're a big Manchester fan, so I'm sure you know about this already, but there was basically 50 people in Manchester who just went to all of the gigs and all the different bands 
And it must have been a nightmare if you're a, a band playing because you seemed like you're only ever playing to the same 50 people wherever you did. And so you had to kind of get a gig outside of Manchester in order to actually kind of get any kind of success. But what you've got to, and, and so Noel was very familiar with the world. And he, and once he did, yeah, as you say, he was very familiar with the world and he, he took to the whole thing very quickly and very easily. But you've got to remember, he got sacked from working for the Inspiral Carpets because he never did any work, <laughs> you know? <laughs> He was not interested in being a roadie. He was interested in hanging around with a band and going around the world to various different places, you know. He, he could not care less about tuning guitars and all that kind of stuff. Um, and as such, he sort of... Uh, and, and also, when, they, when he first saw... Before he was in Oasis, when he first saw them play, they wanted him to become their manager. Because, you know, because you've got all, the, you've got all the, um, the contacts, you know all the people said Liam and he just no laughed them off you know he didn't know anybody he wasn't interested in that couldn't care less and and that's kind of shows again how unwilling they were to play the game you know and that's kind of um makes them even more perfect you know where they could always and then when they sort of hit their stride I, I talk again in the book about what I find interesting is when they had their first enemy cover so just before Shaker Maker came out which I think was June 1994 um the way that they were talking with each other and the things that they were saying, we're going to be the biggest band in the world, you know, we're the best band ever and all that kind of stuff. Sound must have sounded ridiculous at the time. Um, but then just a year later, they were. And so it was all kind of delivered. It was all true. But fast forward to about 1997, when they were at the peak of their success, and they were still saying the same things in the same way to each other. So again, they weren't changed by the whole success thing they were still the same people you know Liam still went to the pub whenever he could it was just unfortunately he was trailed by all the photographers and everything like that um he probably wouldn't have been able to marry Patsy Kensett had he not been a famous rock star but otherwise I think he kind of would have lived his life in exactly the same way as he did and so again you get this idea of them as these kind of perfect rock and roll entities that sort of been (laughs) created by the gods of rock and roll and spat out into the world you know and it kind of didn't necessarily even matter that they weren't really the best band in the world either. Like the mus- musically, they couldn't, they weren't great. Um, obviously, poor old Tony McCarroll got turfed out for not being the best drummer in the world. Um, and Bonehead and Giggsy just very much backed up what Noel told them to play. Just They just played what they were told to. Um but none of that mattered. You know, I can imagine sort of people sort of watching them play before they became successful and saying, yeah, but they're terrible musicians. And, and there were a lot of kind of people in my year at school who said the same thing, you know, they can't play their instruments and they only ever play five notes in the scale and the pentatonic scale. And then I was used to think, so, so what? It sounds great. <laughs> you know, what does it matter? All that matters is they're expressing themselves. And that's kind of the way uh, that's the most important thing, you know? Yes, I'm going to agree with you because I laugh because I have heard that t- that yeah. same kind of like they're not really great musicians. Yeah, Why do they? And-, <laughs> and and reading your book also made me think um, that like when I saw the Inspiral Carpets in like 1991, 92, like yeah. was like Noel Gallagher walking around. Yeah, where well, Benny was. Yeah, carrying and he drums was probably like, stuff, yeah. like now I'm just going to be like, you know, he was at the club hanging yeah, out. Yeah, 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 yeah. We got chatting to him at the bar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> there was this really arrogant guy who said he was going to be really successful one day. We're chatting to him at the bar. 
Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> one thing I also thought was really interesting because um, you were talking about a bit about that whole idea of like what it's what it means to like get into music now is that because and I too am flabbergasted that Oasis lasted as long as they did. Yeah, absolutely. Right? But that they also um, the role of that Simon Cowell X Factor. I mean, for us, American Idol, right? But that like what what the the British Idol, whatever you know, it was called. But like the role of that sort of reality show, which is still going strong, you know, and and how Oasis sort of you talk about that perfect timing, right? Because at the end, they're sort of coming into and competing with that a bit as well. Yeah. Um, so the old whole idea that this kind of, yeah, the reality shows made music contrived, um, you know, I mean, they're not, they're not all terrible singers, but it's just the whole idea of it being like a machine. I guess we're supposed to think of it as a kind of like Motown studios where it's, you know, that where it's kind of like this um, seamless machine where you've got the songwriters in one room creating the hits that get pumped into the studio for the artist to then sing and produce and put that out there into the world. But because of the fact that it's all a television show, it just kind of, um, that comes first, I think, you know, the, the fact that it's, um, you know, there weren't television cameras in the Motown studios. Um, um, the, the fact that it's a TV show being put onto TV, like the one when, one Direction were found. Um, Simon Cowell sort of takes credit of putting them all together. And I remember watching it at the time and the five members of the band all auditioned separately and then didn't get through to the next stage, whatever they, whatever stage they were at. But Simon Cowell had seen something in each of these five people that was different to the 55 other people that were there. And he went and rounded them up and put them into a band and then they went through and that kind of thing. And I think they came second or third in X Factor that year. And then obviously went on to be the most successful band ever. And I think what we were supposed to be shown is that um, he has this incredible eye of being able to pick who these bands are and put them together and then put them out into the world. But it, it just, I remember watching at the time and thinking, this is so set up, it's so staged how he's doing this they're clearly already a band and he's put this on tv because it's for the entertainment now i'm not discrediting them as a band they obviously went on to be one of the most you know the biggest band in the world at the time and that's what it is i, I don't think i can name one of their songs um apart from that one that rips off no, the I, I can't even <laughs> i just know that harry styles has done more outside of one yeah. direction he's for great. me he's, he's the like he, yeah you look yeah. at that kid and you go that guy's an old-fashioned star don't need the other four who the hell are these guys yeah, i'd like? have to look them up like i, I have no but, idea <laughs> but what it actually says to me having watched that show is how random music actually is and how random success is. You can't choose, because for every one of those groups like One Direction that was a huge success, there were 30 other ones that Simon Cowell had put together in exactly the same way, which then didn't achieve any kind of success. So even if his success rate is about 20%, it means that that 20% and their huge success props up all of the 80% failures. 
And it just proves again and again and again, there is absolutely no way that you can pick who is going to be successful, who is going to be a star. Like we've just done with Harry Styles. Very, very easy for us to say that now, retrospectively knowing that he's been a huge, he is a huge star. Um, And maybe we could have picked at the time and said, oh, that guy's going to go on and be something. But nine times out of 10, you get it wrong. And there, there is no way that you can actually predict this kind of stuff. And so the whole basis of these reality shows is founded on this lie of that they will find the stars. All of the winners, for all of those that do go on to find success, the majority of them don't. They have this very short-lived 15 minutes of success, and then they disappear off into the ether, back to work in Sainsbury's or Tesco's or something, you know? And it's kind of, that makes the whole thing just really tragic. And also, it's just... Music is supposed to have scenes that move with the time. Oasis, the best thing that Oasis did was split up in 2009 because it means that now, 10 years later, their legend is enormous and they've always got that to fall back on. And Noel and Liam are both having incredibly successful solo careers. You know, they're both doing really, really well on their own. So we've still got the Gallagher brothers in the charts, in the papers, in the media, arguing with each other. You know, but it's under a slightly different sort of thing, and that's the way it should be. I think the the clever the, it all comes over like the Beatles knew it as well. Like back in nineteen sixty four or five or something like that, someone, I think it was a, a press conference in America when they just come to America for the first time, and the reporter said, "You know, what is it that makes it success? Why are you successful?" And they said, "We don't know. We've got no idea." And John Lennon said. If we knew that, then we'd all form bands and become managers, you know? And it's true. You can't, like, you can't predict what is going to happen, more so than any other industry, I think. And, and if you do try, it, look, it shows. People know. Because the, the, mo- the, the most important thing is that kind of honesty and that kind of truth to it. And that's, and that's what Oasis had in spades, you know? And so when they can, they can stand on the soapboxes and shout up about how great they are, um, it kind of um, makes it even more kind of listenable because you can't really argue. You know, you can't say no, you're not because it's like, well, yes, we are. <laughs> we are really. We're clearly great. You know, we're clearly successful. You don't play it in front of 125,000 people in one go in Nebworth unless you're actually quite good at what you do. You know, the list of bands that have done that, that have played those enormous gigs, is very, very short. You know, for a reason because you have to get to a certain level to be able to do that. Right. And you talk a bit, uh, you talk to about like, w- along with that, that they didn't rely on let's put out like two albums and then release a greatest hits. Right. Without, right. And, and then re and, and I, you put a little dig on you too at one point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was another band that I'm a big fan of, but, but that oh, idea that you. the greatest hits, are this like you just repeat the same songs and the greatest hits so it's also this like one of the things i think that um is you you see in your book is just the depth of their catalog oh yeah and yeah how many great songs they have i mean how many other bands could release a a b-sides album and it basically be like a best of you know how many bands could open their concerts with album tracks and B-sides before they even get to a single, you know? It's kind of crazy. There's no other band like that. And they were just releasing, um, you know, there's that period of between 
the first sort of two, three years of their existence, just every single track that Oasis did was just absolutely golden. Um, and, you know, and I, I love you too as well to, to a degree, but they definitely knew how to play the game. And they did it on purpose. You know, they, mm-hmm. they from day one, they set out to be the biggest band in the world and they achieved it, but through a very different way. They just put their heads down. They played the songs when they needed to. They played, they wrote the right songs in the right way. And then it meant that they could do. And so when they had the huge success with Joshua Tree, it meant that the next album they did, Acton Baby could kind of reset things and they could be slightly more interesting with the way that they did stuff. And so they kind of, you know, they're an interesting band as well. Um, uh, but you know, and Oasis never said that they would never release a greatest hits. Um, but the, they they did release that first. Let me just get my history right. I think they released that first greatest hits so that they finished up their uh, record contract with Sony, so that they could start things fresh, release that album, and then they could start things afresh on their own record label under their own terms. Um, and as it turned out, and then they got an incredible deal. So they were doing, they were kind of cutting edge in terms of what they were getting, uh, sort of rewriting the way that uh, contracts, recording contracts worked. But sadly, they only released one album before they then split up. So they didn't really get much of a chance to be able to, to do that. Um, but Noel sort of quite cleverly said when Stop the Clocks came out or when it was being planned, um, well, if it's going to be released anyway, I might as well curate it myself, you know? Because at least then you get, I get the input and it, it can include the tracks that I actually want to. And of the two greatest hits, um, I think you should probably, the first one was a greatest hit, the second one was more of a best of, because it had tracks which were not released as singles. Um, and as such, you've got the two greatest hits, which are not, um, they're not cynically released to try and create, to sell you know, to try and make money. They were released so that people had access to the music um, in ways that they might not have done before. Um, and that was always sort of their their thing, really. And not many not many other bands do, do that. You kind of get... And they didn't really need, need to release Best Ofs because um, their albums were Best Ofs, you know, and they, they sold enough copies that it was kind of like, we can do what we want, really. Which is quite a nice, going back to the Simon Cowell thing, it's quite a nice foil to the success of those contrived reality bands um, is you look at Oasis and just go, yeah, but this is what can happen if you just get five guys from a council estate and give them some guitars and make them pissed off at the world. That's what you can do. You know, it can be done. You don't have to have... um, you know, huge stage sets and dance routines and choreographers pushing people in the right direction and, and you know, flamethrowers and all that kind of nonsense. You don't necessarily... And I'm not knocking um, acts like Madonna. Yeah, it's just a very different... <laughs> you know, uh-huh. you don't, yeah. I'm not knocking that. That's, that's just... That's a very different way of working. It was only ever about looking at the band and their attitude and listening to their songs. And it was... And that was all it was ever about, you know, and that's what makes it kind of fascinating. Um, they didn't pretend that they were the most forward thinking of groups and it didn't necessarily matter. Um, they weren't necessarily trying to do cutting edge recording techniques or use different innovative musical styles like, like the Beatles had um, because that wasn't what Oasis sort of meant. 
Um, and it's kind of interesting that they harked so much. You know, the Oasis said that the Beatles were their biggest influences and they loved them the most because it's actually the Rolling Stones that they have more in common with. Because the Stones um, basically just spent the whole career writing the same song. And again, that's not a bad thing. That one song is brilliant. I love listening to it, you know. And, and But all of their songs, Keith Richards will be the first person to tell you that everything he writes comes from the blues. And all of that kind of rock and roll is very retrospective. It's, it's all from one kind of muddy waters period kind of time. And uh, and as such, that's what what they made, and that's what their audience hooked onto. And so they just kind of they didn't try and reinvent the wheel every five minutes, and that's exactly what Oasis did. Whereas, sort of ironically, it was Blur that were the much more innovative ones, and so actually picked up from where Beatles left off um, when they did something like Beetlebum, for example. Damon purposely wrote that song as a reaction to uh to try and say this is what the beatles would have been doing now and noel picked up on that and actually you know completely independently without being forced into it Noel and very magnanimously as well after the two fell out so much Noel loved beetle bomb when it came out and said you know probably probably kicked himself for liking it so much but um did you know and it was actually damon that was a little bit bitter about it saying he wanted noel to listen to that and know that it was closer to the beatles than they ever would be and that was kind of interesting and i think that's kind of another part of what you need no, no band exists in a silo and that's something i'm trying to achieve with this series is to put each of the bands in their own social context um you can't help but be influenced by the people around you and what's going on around you um and that's probably why, you know, there's there's a lot of reference to New Labour and um, uh, Tony Blair and all that kind of stuff, Princess Diana, you know, because Oasis absolutely defined the zeitgeist in the 90s. They were absolutely tied up with exactly what was going on in that time. Um, but it was short-lived. And then that they moved away from that. The zeitgeist moved on to other things, to sort of miserable people, um, you know, slitting their wrists over their music. And that was also great. And I love that as well. Um, but Oasis wanted to carry on the kind of party anthem thing. But it meant that once they came back to the table with these different tunes in the new millennium, that their, um, the days were numbered, really, because there's only so many times you can kind of keep doing that same thing. I mean, the, Ro- the Rolling Stones, I guess, have been doing that for 50 years. And they're the exception that proves the rule, I think. Um but yeah, splitting up at the time they did was definitely the most sensible thing they did. Um, but in true Oasis fashion, it came about not because they were looking around at the world going, oh, I think it's probably time that we split up. It came about by a huge bloody argument that they had, you know, <laughs> and Noel said, I can't be around. I can't work with Liam one day more. And you understood why. And it was uh, and it kind of might, must have seemed quite sad at the time. I think it, it was and he regretted it. Noel regretted it at the time, splitting up the way they did, because it meant that a bunch of people missed out on seeing them who had bought tickets for that tour. And that was kind of sad um, because, you know, part of what made the Oasis experience so fascinating was the live concert. Um, But it kind of needed to happen that way that it did. And I think, you know, in retrospect, years later, you sort of look back and go, yeah, it was the kind of, it was the perfect storm for that moment in time. And it kind of had to happen the way that it did. 
even if it did sadly mean a few casualties were made along the way, you know, it's just kind of collateral damage, I guess. And there's no other kind of examples like that. Because again, they did it on their own terms. Like, they're, you know, I'm a big fan of the Stone Roses, who I think Oasis owe the most to musically. Um, uh, but, you know, the Stone Roses were controlled by powers that were beyond their own, um, uh, you know, th- th- their own control. Like um, the whole sort of debacle with their record company, they fell out with the record company and they were embargoed and then stopped from producing music for four years, meant that they hadn't had their hands tied. Um, but the world's not going to wait for them. It's not going to hang around and wait for them to get better and come along. It's going to move on whatever happens. Um, and so there's kind of no excuses at the end of the day. Um, and as such, that's another thing that makes it so fascinating about Oasis is that every single thing that they did was on their own terms. You know, even splitting up in the way that they would have done it, everyone would have advised against it, but it was like, well, too tough. It's, you know, it's happened now really. And there's not many artists that can kind of say that, you know, someone like Paul Weller has always been able to kind of reinvent himself over the times fitting with whatever the times kind of demand for. Um, uh, But he's kind of, he's one guy, you know, and he's never going to kind of have that same legend of being so important at one time, I think. So, so we've been talking for a while, and I could probably keep talking <laughs> to you. <laughs> and I could talk about it forever. It's so fascinating. Yes, yes, I could. Yeah. <laughs> no, and what you're talking about makes me think of yes, other people who you know, and other musicians, and like I feel like Oasis is one of those. Yes, it's sad, but I, I could appreciate. Like if I had tickets, you know, I think I'd be sad at the time, but then I'd be like, okay, that's how I, that's how it had to end. Right. Absolutely. Like, exactly. Yeah. It kind of had to happen the way that it did. Um, <laughs> yeah. It was necessary. Yeah. You know, I mean, what's sad about it is that it is to the detriment of that relationship between those two brothers. It was the most, it was the thing that kept them going. It was the thing that made them so interesting. And you know, and what I distill the essence of Oasis down to is the relationship between Noel and Liam. Something I've tried to do with this series is the cover of the book. Um, it's done by a great um, artist. Um, uh, what I've tried to do with each one is just distill it down to the essence of what the band means. So the cover of this book is the two brothers. The cover of the Blur book is all four of them because that's what the band is. It's always going to be those four guys. The cover of the pulp one is just Jarvis because that's what the essence of pulp is. Um, and as such, yeah, so you distill it down to those two things. And so, yeah, the sad thing is that they don't they don't talk to each other anymore. But I kind of can't imagine, I don't know, it, I, maybe I'm just being an optimist, but I can't imagine that's going to happen forever. Maybe, maybe it will. Yeah, I was. that was like, uh, usually my final question is sort of like, what are you working on next? But you you sort of talked, talked about that, right? About it, yeah. but, so I wanted to just, yeah, just ask, like, do you think there is, right, because... Um, a new single was released less than what a year ago, less than a year yeah, ago. Yeah. Like, it, and, and it, depending on which brother you talk to, it's like, yeah, maybe we'll get together. Right. Like, is there, you know, is that, that idea? Like, it's just like, I know the Smiths will never play on, you know, yeah. Morrissey and Bar will never get on a stage again. Yeah. But I, what are your thoughts? Like, do you think that this is just like, they're done? Or is well, there some hope there? Just a bit, I mean, back in 2012 or whatever it is, I would have said, I bet the Stone Roses never get back together. They'll be one of those bands that don't. 
because they've all moved on to other things. And then they did. And it kind of made sense once they did. And it kind of, I thought Ian Brown had moved on too much as a musician. He was interested in much more electronic music and stuff like that. And John Squire was very much kind of trapped in the past. Um, you know, Manny was playing with Primal Scream and stuff. And, um, but then they did, and it kind of made perfect sense when they did. So never say never. I, I think you're right about the Smiths. I don't think there's anywhere they'll ever play it again, together again. And looking at Johnny Marr and what he's achieved in the past 30 years since the since the band split up, it's just it's almost unrecognisable from what he was doing with the Smiths. And it's and it must be a bit crap for Johnny Marr actually because he kind of his whole career is always going to be defined by basically four years. You know, is when he was 19 years old, is he joined the Smiths, knocked on Morrissey's door, and uh, four years later it was all done and dusted. That's a very short period of time, you know, <laughs> and then everything he's done ever since is only ever going to be judged in comparison to that. It's kind of a bit crappy, but it's been so good. It's so good, of course it is, and I, I'm a huge, huge Smiths fan. Mor- Morrissey is just kind of like he just seems to do everything he possibly can to alienate the biggest amount of people to as be he the possibly one. can, you know. And it's sort of like, okay, all right, fine, you do your own thing. But interestingly yeah. enough, even the fact that he is a bit of a lunatic doesn't stop me playing those records, you know. I still listen to this <laughs> all the time, you know. Um, but as for the and then the band like the Happy Mondays, I was just thinking about. <laughs> They're going to get back together every five minutes, you know. It'll only yeah. ever, it'll only ever be Sean Ryder and Bez, but every time he needs to, you know, pay his tax bill or something, there'll there'll be another Happy Mondays reunion, you know. So that's I think we can take that for granted. But with someone like Oasis, it's difficult to say really. Liam would get the group back together tomorrow because he loves that. He's he's obsessed with the idea of rock and roll, and to him, rock and roll is a band playing like a little gang of lads, you know. There was that kind of it's an us and them thing. It's a bit like being a football team, I guess. You don't you don't play football on your own. You have a team, and it's the same thing with rock and roll. You have a band, and although he's experiencing a lot of success as with his solo work, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> he's experiencing a lot of success in his solo work, and it's really good stuff as well. Um, he would much prefer to be in a band, and if you've been in the biggest band in the world, how could you ever, you know? not want to be in that band anymore um but then noel on the other hand uh he is doing everything that he ever wanted to do on his own he's not necessarily as into it's for him it's he's the musician he's the muso he loves music that's his first sort of love affair with this whole idea you know this whole this whole kind of industry and stuff and um and as such, he's doing what he, he needs to be doing. He can play concerts to thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Um, or he can record in a studio and do it the way he wants to do it. So it just, it doesn't have the same appeal. Um, the only, although he does, you know, he does play Oasis songs when he plays live. Um, and he tries to do kind of interesting ones as well. And I saw him a few years ago, he did a, an acoustic version of Supersonic, which was really interesting. Cause I've only ever heard that song as this kind of, you know, punky thing. Um, but that said, I think it could quite easily twist on its head within a second and they could be playing some kind of, you know, acoustic set at the Royal Albert Hall or something like that, you know, or maybe something or other in the future. Never say never, I guess. But the other thing being with Oasis is they were in two very distinct halves. 
the whole career. You had the first Oasis 1.0 with Giggsy and Bonehead, and I guess we'll, we'll say Alan White as the drummer, definitely. And then you've got the second half when you had Andy Bell and Gem Archer in it. Um, so which iteration would you have if they got back together, you know? Would you <laughs> do a muck busted and just have them all on stage, hundreds of people, you know? Um, which I don't think would sort of would work at all. So you, if you start to be you start to sort of think about it, it becomes a bit more complicated than you might have really thought. Alan White's not talking to them anymore. You know, it's that kind of stuff. You know, they kind of fell out and everyone's sort of doing their own thing. So for, for Noel, sorry, I'm going a very long-winded response, but I think for it to be worthwhile, it would need to be something more than just Liam and Noel doing something with the two of them. It would need to be something along the lines of the proper band. But what does that band look like? who's playing in it well it has been super wonderful talking to you again um tom boniface webb who is the author of oasis which is the first book in the modern music masters series thank you for talking to me on new books network new books in popular culture thank you so much for having me it's been an absolute joy